Let's open the Gospel of John to the 12th chapter. John chapter 12. And we'll deal further in that middle section of its 50 verses. Part of us would like to get to the 31st and 32nd verses. And they certainly have their place, and they certainly describe some stupendous events that took place in world history. However, we're going to trust our Redeemer and the head of the church for his choice of verses for us in this first assembly. Let me read to you a few verses beginning at verse 20 to remind us of this middle section of John chapter 12. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Amen. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I... If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Amen and amen. amen. To the words of God and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at this middle section and we see verses, we, we all enjoy verse 21 because we have Gentiles wanting to see Jesus. They're not content with apostles they want the Lord. And we see that and we appreciate that. But we also see in verses 23 and 24 that Jesus is talking about something changing. Him being given glory that he doesn't have when he was on earth in his humility. So he's introducing us to a big change coming by saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That little entrance into Jerusalem was not it. There's something bigger coming. 
And then he describes it in verse 24, which we covered last Lord's Day, with the seed being planted in the ground and dying, and how it brings forth much fruit. And the much fruit of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrected life is Gentile. It's not Jewish. If Jesus only saved the Jews, it would not be much fruit. It would be a poor harvest. But it's the Gentiles. It's the multitude no man can number out of every nation, not including theirs. It's out of the Gentile nations that made Jesus so prosperously successful. And so we have that introduction to glory. And then, in verse 28, he asks the Father to glorify his name through him, through his death. And the Father answers from heaven, I have glorified it and I will do it again. And then we have some of the events associated with Jesus Christ's glory. In verses 31 and 32, three events. The judgment of this world, the casting out of the devil, and drawing all men to himself. Especially meaning all the Gentiles that would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says all men, in verse 33, or verse 32, we understand that to be all kinds of men without distinction, not all men without exception, because that would contradict the rest of Scripture. It's like when we read in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is, is not the root of all evil without exception. It's the root of all kinds of evil without distinction, because money has led men to do all kinds of things. But when we look at this section and we see the introduction of glory, then we see a follow-up of glory promised from God the Father to his Son and three big events, we would like to get to those events. And we would like to consider how they give Jesus Christ glory. But this man, our Savior, the greatest man you'll ever know, and that is a poor way of describing him because he's fairer than 10,000 and he's the prince of the kings of the earth and he's God's beloved Son, this Savior gave us two verses about discipleship before we proceed further in this chapter, and so we will deal with them right now. Verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. It's valuable for us to appreciate that while describing his glory in verse 23 and describing much fruit in verse 24, he immediately goes to discipleship in verse 25. If we're going to be associated with the Lord of glory, there's only one way to get there, and that is through discipleship. It's not merely by believing on him. It's not merely by giving mental assent to doctrines about him. It's verse 25. These are true disciples. We had in John chapter 8 the words of our Lord Jesus Christ saying about disciples indeed are different from many believers. Many believed on him and were not going to continue in his word and so they weren't considered disciples indeed. These are real disciples. These are the ones that are associated with the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is his description of the rule. The valuable rule of Jesus is repeated often in the Gospels. These words right here, these are repeated over and over. They're three times in Matthew. Look, let's get these words again. He that loveth his life shall lose it. 
There are so many men that have hugged themselves to death. Death in this world and death in the world to come. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. So you get to keep it now and you get eternal life coming for the man that hates his life in this world. And we're going to understand this love and hate here in a, on a relative basis and a comparative basis, not an absolute sense, because there are things that we are supposed to love that we're told to hate. But in comparison to our love of Jesus Christ and spiritual things, you would think, and by observing, you might conclude that they hate those things. Because we should put them so far down our list of priorities, it doesn't look like they even are there in our priorities. Because we've made him and heavenly things our priority. This, this rule is repeated over and over in all the Gospels, including John. And we want to embrace it. There's so much value in it for you. Here we are, God's chosen to give us a life in this world. Could he have just created souls and taken them all to heaven? Could he have let us live long enough to sin? How long would that be? One second after conception. Because then you were guilty of Adam's sin, and then he could have saved us. But he left us in this world. So when it says, hateth his life in this world, it's God that chose to leave us here in this world with a life. But what do we do with that life? He is the high king of heaven. And he has followers, servants. He has disciples. They are the ones that have said, I will follow Jesus Christ. They were like Peter. They were like Paul. Paul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? This is how you do it. You count your own life worthless. The things of this life the lusts of it, the pleasures of it, the success of it, the pride of it, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, which sums up everything that you have in your life, you put it down and forsake it and count it a loss. And it's not truly living to live for Jesus Christ. And thus, he's going to teach right here in the middle of him being glorified about discipleship. Because he is describing stupendous events in the world and who will be counted with Jesus Christ in those successes and victories that we're going to read about. The world is his. Every authority, throne, might, power, and dominion is his. Who are his followers? We see him in Revelation 19 on a white horse and the armies of heaven are on white horses behind him. How do we get in the army of heaven? How, do we, how are we among his saints clothed in white linen? This right here is the discipleship that follows faith. And so we want to embrace the rule here that the Lord's given us. If God created us and he saved us, then he absolutely knows how to have the best life. Do you believe that? Yes. If you alter his rules for your life at all, and do you know how and why we alter them? We alter them because we do not want to give up something that we believe satisfies, pleases, and thrills us. We believe that we have an idea of what would make us 
happiest. And so we choose those things and we protect those things and we love those things even when they are not the things God has told us we should choose and love and and embrace and follow. But here he's telling us the rule. Don't do it your way, do it my way. If you do it your way, you're going to lose your life and you're going to show the evidence of not having eternal life. If you'll do it my way, you'll keep your life and you'll have eternal life. That's win-win, if I can understand win-win correctly. You win now and you win later, but we've got to do it his way. Holding on to this earthly life will cost you true joy now and eternal life to come. Some presume fatalistically on eternal life, but the truly saved will live sacrificially like this verse describes. This verse is describing those that end up with life eternal. They hate their life in this world. And you know what? The apostles did this verse. The apostles did this verse. They hated their lives in this world. They laid down their lives in this world. They died martyr deaths, and so did many others along beside them and after them during the dark ages of European history. They died as martyrs. Now that's losing your life in the ultimate sense, and that is definitely included right here because the previous verse, verse 24, is talking about Jesus laying down his life and being planted in the ground like a seed. That is the context, and we always let context direct our application of verses. But short of that, it is to deny ourselves the things of this life that are contrary to God's will for us. This rule is the standard for disciples indeed, who will follow Jesus Christ at any cost. Discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, and that is what we want for this church. We want this church to be Christ-centered. We want this church to honor and exalt Him. We want this church to be a church, a congregation, a body, a group, an organism of devoted disciples. Discipleship is an economic term. It's economic. You count and you pay. Look at Luke 14, 25 with me. When a large multitude was following the Lord Jesus Christ, he explained this concept. He explained this rule of discipleship in economic terms. And that is to count up the cost and pay. And the cost is given to us in the Word of God. The things we can't do, the things we should do. And so we look at what we should do, and we look at what we shouldn't do, and we realize if I follow Jesus Christ... If I'm going to really follow him the way he wants to be followed as a disciple, I must do these things and can't do these other things. That's going to cost me. Then you pay it. And when you were baptized, you said you were going to pay it. I wouldn't have baptized you otherwise if I baptized you. Because it's all about discipleship. Counting up the cost. Luke 14, 25, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. Now, this is not the way to increase the crowd, but this is how Jesus Christ preached. When great multitudes followed him, he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, 
and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. The issue here is one of cost. And so when it says here, hate your wife, hate your father, hate your mother, hate your children, yea, hate your own life also. Isn't that exactly what we have in John chapter 12 and verse 25? Hating our lives in this world, and here are the dearest things in life. Relationships. And in comparison to our love of Christ, we hate them. Yet, I hope that everyone that's hearing my voice understands the Bible tells husbands to love their wives. Yet in comparison to Christ, they will not let there be competition between the two. The value of anything is determined by what you will give up for it. And the value, that's just an economic rule. That is why money is a medium of exchange. Because your money, and forget money itself, it's really not very important. But it is as a medium of exchange because you've got this thing over here that you could buy for a sum of money, but instead you forego that to buy this. And everyone is doing that every day, all day, and that is how prices are established and supply and demand is set by that constant choice. It's called human action which is the title of one of the better economic books ever written by Ludwig von Mises of the Austrian School of Economics about human action taking place in the world and this constant set of choices which uses money as the medium of exchange to say, I could get this, but no, I'm not. I want this. And that sets so much and sets prices in the world. But the Lord is teaching us his economic rule. And he uses an illustration of a man going to build a tower. That man sits down, looks at the blueprint, takes, gets some estimates of what the materials and the labor will cost him to build this tower. Then he determines whether he can do it or not, if he's got the means. And so we have to make that choice. I'm going to give up things for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we had pressed upon us today already from Psalm 91... Yeah that for us to realize and obtain the blessings and promises of Psalm 91, we have to meet the conditions of Psalm 91. And the conditions in Psalm 91 are plainly identified by several uses of the word because. Because he did this, I will do this, the Lord says. And so in John chapter 12 and verse 25, here is the relationship of because and benefit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. If you love your life in this world, that means you love your family so much that you are just horrified at the thought of ever displeasing your family or losing your family for the cause of Christ. You cannot be Jesus' disciple. Family is nothing. And I know when I say those words, some of you may just squirm but family is nothing. Jesus used the word hate. I hope I'm in the same camp with him. 
Family is nothing in comparison to the Lord of glory. Your job, if your job is so demanding that it is stealing your soul and stealing your family and stealing your service to Christ in the church, you should hate it. If children, if doubling your number of children would cramp you in your ability to serve Christ, you should curtail the number of children you have. So much is this true that the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 7 that it is better not to marry and be like him than to marry, and we know marriage is a good thing. So it's constantly looking at the cost of discipleship to follow Jesus all out, to gain the fullest reward and the fullest blessings as Daniel presented to us from Psalm 91 requires us living by this rule right here. So much could be said about this rule. We want to count the cost. If you're not suffering losses of some sort, you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. For all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There will be loss. There's the loss of your pride, women, to submit to your husbands. There's the loss of your pride, husbands, to apologize to your wives for being onerous, odious, and difficult. There's the restraint on our mouth when there are words already in our tongue set on fire of hell from our hearts that want to blow out of our mouths, and it's to shut them off, even though you can already savor the pleasure that it would give you to slice someone in your presence. I just know that because some of you have told me. Amen. That's following Jesus Christ. Hating our lives in this world. Making employment choices. We only marry in the Lord. We're not out to marry some worldly princess. Guys have tried that before. Would you like a couple names? Would you like to remember about Solomon and his outlandish women? His exotic women that he married from every nation on earth and it destroyed him. How about Samson? Not content with the beauties and babes of Israel, he wanted the Philistine whores. It's constantly, we will marry in the Lord. We will live for the Lord. We will keep his commandments. We'll have a family like the Lord. We'll serve in church like the Lord tells us to. We'll give of our time. We'll give of our money. We'll follow him. We'll pursue him. We'll give ourselves to prayer. Verily, verily, we have here in verse 25 a rule. He that loveth his life shall lose it. When you make your choices the love of your life, you will lose. You're going to lose peace. You're going to lose joy. You're going to be frustrated, especially if you're a child of God. Even the world ends up giving themselves over to dysfunctional lives, drugs, drunkenness, and other ways of trying to, to put down their conscience and their lost joy in life. They're not happy. Look at their lives. And if you love your life in this world, you'll lose it. You'll not only lose the joy of it, you'll lose the productivity of it, you'll lose the Lord's commendation of it, and you'll lose eternal life. Not that you ever had it, but this is one of the evidences of gaining eternal life. And so we have the rule of discipleship. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. 
A man that keeps his life keeps it by hating it. Hating his life in this world and loving serving Christ. Get this in your heads and remember it. He that loveth his life, that is his life in this world, shall lose his life in this world and lose eternal life. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep his life in this world unto life eternal. How do you get a 10,000% return, economically speaking, since it's the Lord that used the terms, how do you get a 10,000% return by being a disciple of Jesus Christ? You forsake all that you have, and he promises to give you a hundredfold more of those things in this life, in this world, since it's called in this world, and eternal life in the world to come. Is that a true statement by Jesus Christ? Do you need to look at it? It's Mark 10, verses 28 through 30. Mark 10, 28 through 30. Peter was wanting to convince the Lord that he had left everything to follow Jesus. Verse 29 of Mark 10. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you. And so he's addressing Peter and the rest of the apostles and other listeners. There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands. Notice that list of things that make up a life in this world. Here's a man that has forsaken those things. But Jesus says, there's no man that has done this by leaving all of these things for my sake. And the Gospels, and that's a possessive apostrophe there, the Gospels' sake, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. What a promise. What a promise. And if you say to me, I haven't fully realized that yet, I will say to you, you have not fully hated your life in this world yet. Because Jesus doesn't lie. You lie and I might. But Jesus doesn't lie, and this is Jesus' rule. It's a shame that we have men in the Bible like John Mark, one of the losers. But he was recovered, wasn't he? Then we, what, John Mark was a loser. He went preaching with Paul and Barnabas and left them. We have Demas, having loved this present world. He loved this present world, and for 2,000 years... Paul's been a name caller because New Testament churches name names. Demas has been written for men then living that knew him as a contemporary, that he was a loser. And for 2,000 years, we've read his name of being a loser for having loved this present world and never amounted to anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul wrote about him in the last chapter Paul wrote in the Bible. 2 Timothy 4, just before he died, he said he was ready to die, but Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Let that never be said of any of us. Let's follow this rule that we have. The martyrs did the opposite, didn't they? The martyrs laid down their lives to follow Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to follow him better, there's lots of... There's lots of material on our website that you can look at. For instance, your body is the Lord's. It will tell you everything you ought to be doing and shouldn't be doing with your body. Is Jesus Lord of all? Goes through about 40 different parts of life and asks, is Jesus the Lord of that part of your life? Let's come to verse 
26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Let's look at Matthew's account of similar verses put together so that we might see their connection. Because when I look at the first clause, the first pass, when you look at John 12, 26, if any man serve me, that sounds like discipleship. Let him follow me, that sounds like discipleship. So if any man's going to be a disciple, let him be a disciple. There's more to it than that if we'll rightly divide these words. Let's go to Matthew 16 and see how the Lord puts it here by Matthew's writing. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, so there's a coming after Christ that doesn't have a cross on it initially, but gets a cross on it later, because as you come to Christ, you realize that you need to sacrifice things in your life. When it says take up your cross, does everyone in a Baptist church understand what that means? It doesn't mean that you need to stop by the church bookstore on your way out of here and buy yourself a cross to wear around your neck. That's what other churches do. A cross around your neck is wearing a curse. Because cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The cross is a sign of the curse. We don't use crosses. We don't wear them. That's Catholic. That's Roman Catholic. And then if you get a Jesus with a towel on him, you've got a crucifix. That isn't what we do. To take up your cross is to kill something. Is to sacrifice something. The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. That is taking up your cross. It's pulling out a hammer and nails and saying, I am not going to marry that person because they do not love the Lord Jesus Christ as they should. And so you nail that person to the cross. And we ought to nail the whole world to the cross. The world's nailed us to the cross. If laws against murder were lifted... And if we didn't live in America, even now at this late stage in the game with America, they would kill us for what we believe and the one that we love. That's taking up your cross. It's denying yourself. It's nailing something to the cross. It's not wearing one. Matthew 16, 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If you were to gain everything and not have eternal life, is it a good exchange? It's economic again. This is an economic exchange. What does eternal life equal in this world? Something less than the whole world? The whole world? Or more than the whole world? What is eternal life? How, would, how do we value it? Now, is there anybody in here just about to get the whole thing? To get the whole kit and caboodle? Anybody in here just about to get their arms around the whole thing? We're all paupers. 
We all live in little tiny houses. We all eat cereal out of boxes, some of you. We all eat cheap bacon. Whatever we do, we're all paupers. Anybody about to gain the whole world? But the comparison, the economic comparison Jesus gives is gaining the whole world. What if you could own the whole thing? That's bigger than Solomon. Solomon didn't own a postage stamp of it. It's still not worth your soul. And so the Lord Jesus Christ appeals to us that way because when we step out of these doors, they, the world that is, they want to sell us all kinds of stuff, all kinds of ambition, all kinds of measurements of your life. But it's not real strength and it's not real prosperity. Real prosperity is following Jesus Christ. It gives joy now, rewards now, honors from God now, productivity now for the cause of Christ and eternal life in the world to come. Back to John chapter 12. Back to John chapter 12. It's, we need to do more than see Jesus. We need to follow Jesus. We need to be willing to hate our lives in this world for the Lord Jesus Christ. If any man serve me, you Greeks, my apostles that are listening, if you really want to be a servant of me and I'm about to be glorified, you men know that my whole life has been moving toward an event that is going to drastically change things. If you want to be a servant of mine, and I hope that every one of us today wants to be a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll never leave us there as a bond slave, but that ought to be our mentality because he has adopted us as his children and brethren, and he's not ashamed to call us brethren. But we should want to serve him. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Let him live life my way and let him lay down his life my way. Jesus died. The apostles died behind him, and so did other followers of the apostles lay down their lives. We're not asked to do that. So we are an effeminate generation, even of sincere and true Christians, because we're not asked to do anything big except to lay down our pride, lay down our time, lay down our relationships, and do them God's way. But will we? If any man serve me, let him follow me. Let him live my way. Let him die my way. Do you know that is the lesson of Scripture? Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So if we live, let us live unto the Lord. If we die, let us die unto the Lord. We are the Lord's. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If we follow Jesus Christ in his life, and we follow Jesus Christ in his death, where will we end up? With him. To be absent from the body is to be present, present with the Lord. Amen. So Jesus is encouraging the Greeks and Andrew and Philip and whoever else is in this audience that don't just seek me, don't just see me, don't just hear me, serve me, follow me, you'll be with me, and if any man serve me, him will my father honor. This is real servitude. If he's our Lord and Master, then we should be happy with the title servant. When we open up Romans chapter 1, how does it start? Paul, a mighty apostle. No, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul loved being a servant, and he was the greatest of the apostles. 
Do we want to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him in the way he lived and follow him in the willingness to lay down our lives, literally? If we do that, we'll end up where he is. If we do that, the Father will honor us. Verse 27 is quite different, though in the same lesson, overall lesson. What is, he, what is he referring to here? In verse 23, he calls it his glory. In verse 24, he's going to be planted. In verse 25, it's losing your life in this world to gain life in another world. In verse 26, it's to be with Christ, and he's not going to be on earth but a few more days. So what are those four verses talking about? Dying. Those four verses are talking about dying because that is what it was going to take for Jesus Christ to be glorified. And so he says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. The rules of discipleship have been left behind. And he's talking about himself. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Do you ever have two voices inside you? One voice telling you what you ought to do, and another voice telling you something else that you'd like to do? The Lord Jesus Christ had voices competing inside of him. He had a human nature. He had a divine nature. He had a human spirit. His human spirit was tempted in all points like as we are, but never without sin. You know what happens when we let that other voice in. We fall for it, and it's a sinful voice. His wasn't a sinful voice. His voice was, Father, save me from this hour. Is there an alternative? If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Then the other voice. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Amen. And so he, this is John's version of that. Now is my soul troubled. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said, I am exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. It was about to overwhelm him. The knowledge of the violent and cruel death he was about to suffer. And this is the Lord Jesus speaking of it. Now is my soul troubled. Because we had John chapter 11, where Jesus was troubled in spirit and where Jesus wept, we have had preparatory material to understand this verse that the human nature of Jesus could be troubled. Otherwise, how would he ever be able to relate to you? You're troubled most of the time. You also told me that about yourselves. So he was troubled because we want a faithful high priest that is merciful to us that we can go to and get help from him because he himself hath suffered being tempted like we're tempted. And so he understands soul trouble. You know, when we're, tr when we're experiencing soul trouble or when you're experiencing soul trouble to protect your pastor's integrity, you think that you're alone in the world almost. That the burdens you're bearing, no one else is really bearing. And yet the Bible tells us that everyone else is bearing burdens and trouble and soul like you are. But not like this man. The Lord Jesus Christ had things coming and we've looked at the four different categories of the sufferings of Jesus Christ at Calvary for our sins and he was troubled. And what shall I say? How do you talk to yourself? It sounds like David. 
the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 42, Psalm 43. O oh my soul, why art thou cast down? Why are you so troubled? You know that God's gonna, God is the health of your countenance. You know that God's going to deliver you. But there's that conflict of being cast down by a human soul. And Jesus is the same way. But he prays. And what should we do when we are cast down and troubled in soul? Pray. Father, save me from this hour. Go ahead and ask God to deliver you from what is making you better. Go ahead, ask him to deliver you from what is giving him greater glory and honor. And that's some heavy lifting. That's some painful workouts. Go ahead and say, Father, save me from this hour. Yet what should the next word be? But, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Lord, save me from this if it be your will. But if it's not your will, give me the grace to bear it. That through my weakness, I can show your strength. Because that's what Paul did with his thorn in the flesh. When I am weak, then am I strong. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Let's not whine about our infirmities. Let's glory in our infirmities. If you want to go home and spend about one sentence asking the Lord to take it away from you, go ahead. You're like the Lord Jesus Christ. But can you change that fast and that thoroughly? He just keeps right on praying too. Because look at verse 28. Father, glorify thy name. He understands what we should understand and what we do declare in this church long and loud. What were you made for? The glory of God. The Lord hath made all things for himself. He has created all things for his pleasure. That's Proverbs 16.4, then Revelation 4.11. So we've been created for God's glory. So when we're troubled in verse 27, and we don't know what to say, and we're being overwhelmed, pray, Father, save me from this hour. Submit ourselves to his perfect will for our lives, no matter how painful it might be. He knows best. But for this hour came I unto this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. And then pray again. Verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Heavenly Father, take this burden away from me if it be thy will. But if it is not thy will, give me the strength to bear it because my purpose in this life is not my pleasure, but thy glory. Glorify thyself through me and to me. That's how we want to pray. And that's how the Lord Jesus Christ prayed. Father, glorify thy name. Jesus is talking about what? Let's make sure we know the context here. Verse 23, the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus needed to suffer to enter into his glory. Do we know that from Luke chapter 24, where he's talking with two on the road to Emmaus? The Son of Man needed to suffer, then enter into his glory. So he's talking about death. In verse 23, is planting in verse 24 is death. In verse 25, losing your life for eternal life, death. In verse 26, being where Jesus is, is that losing your life in this world? It's death. Verse 27, the soul trouble of Jesus, is that death? So, when he says in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Is he asking for a cloud formation? Cloud formation. Jehovah! 
Is, that what, is he asking for something like that? No. He's asking for the Father to glorify himself through his death to obey his Father. Because that's what's here. That is the crucial turning point of history when Jesus was willing to lay down his life for us. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. There's a both, meaning there's two things, and there's an again, meaning there's two things. I have glorified my name through your life, and I will yet glorify my name some more through your death, because that's the context. Father, glorify thy name. Can we be as good, as perfect as the Lord Jesus Christ Though being very troubled of going to a cruel, violent death in which he knew the details. Do you think he knew Psalm 22? Do you think Jesus Christ knew Psalm 22 and that his tongue would be cleaving to the roof of his mouth from thirst and that his bones would be pulling, his joints would be pulling apart on the cross of Calvary? Yet, Father, glorify thy name. If this is the vehicle, for you to get glory to yourself through me dying. Bring it on and do it. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I have glorified it. There were angelic announcements to individuals and shepherds. The display was significant. Gabriel went here. Gabriel went there. Angels burst open the countryside fields over shepherds. There was a star that led wise men from the east. God spoke from heaven and sent a dove at our Lord's baptism. He spoke from heaven again and glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration till he was glistening. By miracles very diverse and many, God had given him power to display God's glory. By doctrine, glorious and true, God had blessed Jesus with the tongue of the learned. He had glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's going to glorify it again in a different way. This is the end of his life. All that's in front of him is his death and glory. Death and glory. The people, therefore, in verse 29, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. I like that about the voice of God. In Psalm 29, it's all about the voice of God. And what's it all about in Psalm 29? Thunder. The voice of God. When we go to the book of Revelation, you can find it in about five to seven places that the voice of God or the voice of even angels is like the sound of thunder. We love thunder. It says power without spelling it for you. When, it's when lightning is close enough and the thunder and the lightning rip the air, it shakes your body, shakes the foundation of your house. You can feel the compaction and compression, and it's wonderful. Oh, yes. Those little, white one, those little white guys at the end of a fireworks display are okay, but they're not quite the same as God's thunder. Amen. Thundered. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to them. The Jews often thought and usually assumed that if God wanted to communicate to somebody, he would send angels because he had sent angels to give them the law of Moses, which was given to Moses by the disposition of angels, if the word spoken by 
angels was held steadfast in Hebrews chapter 2. This was a common assumption of the Jews. You know, we're not told if they understood the words or not, but they knew that there was something from heaven for Jesus Christ. See, sometimes when God speaks from heaven, they hear a voice, but they don't hear the words. If you go to Acts chapter 9, Paul will say as he testified about his experience on the road to Damascus that those who were with him heard the voice. Then when you go to Acts chapter 22 and read him describing the very same event, he says they understood not the words that were spoken. So it tells us that, that sometimes God can just thunder down like that and they could very well have heard it. You know what? I want to say something to you right here at a point like this. I don't care. Here's why I don't care. I don't care if they understood his words or not because we're not told and it doesn't impact me. What impacts me is I understood the words. So I don't care if they did or not. That's with the Lord and that's with them. I know that it sounded like thunder and I know what was enunciated and I know that Jesus heard it and I know that God brought it to John's remembrance so that he could write it down and I don't think that it's John's guess about what was said. I think these are the exact words. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify thy name. God answered, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. It seems reasonable that they would have understood the words because they were in direct response to his prayer of asking for glory. Father, glorify thy name. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again, but it doesn't matter to me because I know what was said, and this gets it pretty exciting. When Jesus Christ says in verse 23, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus was not glorified on earth. Do you know what it is called while he was on earth? His state of humiliation. He humbled himself to the death of the cross. But on the other side of the cross is a different thing. And Jesus could see that coming. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Hebrews 12. He understood and knew Isaiah 53 and the 12th verse. Therefore shall God divide him a portion with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew Psalm 16. I have always set the Lord before me and he is at my right hand that I should not be moved because there are pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Jesus knew what was coming and here he's giving the... We are within hours of his crucifixion. If you say it's still two days, I call that hours. It's no longer months and years because we started with only six days left to the Passover in the first verse of John chapter 12. And so Jesus in verse 23 said, The hour is come, the time has arrived, that the Son of Man should be glorified. And this is our brother. He was laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. As an infant, he was persecuted. The Jews took up stones to stone him. His own brothers and sisters wouldn't believe on him. But he is about to be glorified and things are going to change. And they're going to change drastically. And though he is troubled in his soul, brethren, the conflict going on inside the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he is perfectly, totally victorious over it. Notice the transition in that one verse of 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? The only thing we can ever say, 
Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Can you go to work that way tomorrow? Can you love your husband that way today? Can you obey your parents that way today? Can we honor 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that way? Father, glorify thy name. We will do whatever you call us to do, even if it's costly, even if it means laying down our lives. We will follow our Savior. Jesus answered and said in verse 30, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. This thunder that some of you think you heard from heaven, the angels speaking to me that others of you think you heard, that came to confirm who I am and what mission I am on. The mission is not mine. The mission is God's. My purpose is to glorify him even by my death. And so even if I die, my purpose will be the glory of God. Father, glorify thy name. Even though the event at hand was not a burning bush. The event at hand was not a separating of the waters of the Red Sea. The event at hand was not holding the sun and moon stay still in their places for Joshua. The event at hand was not moving the sundial of Ahaz back 10 degrees. The event at hand was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, glorify thy name. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And Jesus said this came for you to hear it and for you to know. That is so powerful that Jesus would put the emphasis or exclusively this voice from heaven for the benefit of the hearers and not for himself. Do you know how comforting that would have been to Jesus of Nazareth? But yet he puts all the emphasis for the audience around him. Because he's troubled in his soul, he asks, Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause I'm here, I've always been about my Father's business. Glorify thy name. I have and I will. And that would have been comforting to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was a rescue for the Lord Jesus Christ, though Jesus said, as they described thunder, as they described an angel's voice, it wasn't so much for me, it was for you, for you to know that God sent me. Because what was about to happen didn't look like God sent him. Isaiah 53, when it says, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Why does it say that? Because looking at Jesus of Nazareth just from the outside, he lost in, on trial. He lost. He lost with Pilate. He lost with the Jews. He lost with Herod. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But for those that have read all of Isaiah 53... He was bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. All that was happening to him because it pleased the Father to bruise him for you and for me. That brings us to verse 31, which we'll take up after our break. Verses 25 and 26. The glory of Jesus Christ. We love to sing it. We've already sung it today. We're going to sing more of it. It only applies to us if we're willing to submit to the rules of discipleship in verses 25 and 26. Are you willing to do things his way? If you try to do things your way, it will destroy you. If you do things his way, he created us. He ordained marriage. He ordained working. 
He ordained everything. He gave us the tongue. He gave us two ears and one mouth. Does that tell you something? He gave us all these things, and if we do them his way, we will re realize the best that life can offer in this world, and we will realize eternal life in the world to come. May the Lord bless the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ to us and God's answer from heaven as we prepare ourselves for the 31st verse. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.